Broadcasting from the studios of Business Radio X, it's time for Litigator's Lounge. This show is brought to you by Hall Booth Smith, guiding clients through challenging workplace legal issues. Now, here are your hosts. Hello. Hi, Shiley. Hi, Jackie. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm getting ready to start doing my taxes and just got my W-2. You did? That's exciting news. (laughs) The things that really thrill us as adults, right? No, that doesn't thrill me at all. I was like, I was hoping you'd have something a little bit more interesting to share, but we could talk about W-2s. I'm sure that people are interested. Yeah, I think that it's actually really pertinent because we're actually talking today about 1099s versus W-2s and who's an independent contractor and who's an employee. It's the age-old battle between gig workers, independent contractors, and employees. We've got ringside seats to this melee here in the litigator's lounge. (laughs) Here in the litigator's lounge. So should I be drinking a more adult drink than a lychee martini when we talk about this? I can't conceive of a more adult drink than a lychee martini. I see yours has edible glitter in it. As per usual. And extra lychees. Extra lychees. All right. The litigator's lounge is now open. So what's the latest? I think that what's been interesting in current events is, oh, independent contractors, the new rule. The Department of Labor really stuck one to employers this week, huh? Or last yeah, week or the week January before. January 9th. January 9th. The Department of Labor for the United States government announced its final independent contractor rule that defines whether a worker is considered to be an employee or an independent contractor under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which a lot of us see abbreviated as the FLSA. Um, So employees qualify for a wide range of protections under federal and state laws uh, that independent contractors, people who are classified as independent contractors, don't get. And so in this case, the U.S. Department of Labor rule covers the classification under the FLSA, which guarantees minimum wage and overtime pay for anything over 40 hours worked in a week. This new final rule that was issued by the Biden administration's DOL rescinds a Trump-era rule from 2021 that made it a lot easier for employers to classify workers as independent contractors. So this is actually one of the most expansive regulatory actions that has been taken by the Biden administration to date. And since this is happening at the beginning of 2024, we have a little bit of whiplash since the last rule change was in 2021. It wasn't around very long. Who knows what will happen after the 2024 election? Who knows how long this will be there? I don't know. I When I read this, I think that me, along with pretty much every other employer, exhaled this collective gasp of, Ugh, what now, Department of Labor, right? But none of it should be surprising to anybody in an election year. I think that if you can't say you saw this coming or something monumental from the Biden administration on behalf, or at least purportedly on behalf of the labor force and workers everywhere. I'd be surprised to hear that. This brings me back to the Obama administration and its increase of the threshold for exempt workers or its attempted increase of the threshold for exempt workers. The the salary threshold, you mean? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Many years ago. So when, Jackie, does this rule affect employers, this new final rule from the Department of Labor? 
March 11th. It's going to go into effect March 11th and starting on March 11th and the new rule, which we'll talk about in about 60 seconds, is going to impact probably about 50, 60 million people, if not more, according to labor statistics. It's important. A lot of people brush this off and they might think, oh, whatever, something's come down from the Department of Labor. It doesn't apply to me. It probably does. If you're a business owner who has independent contractors or you are an independent contractor looking for work, this applies to you. And I think that people would be well advised to pay attention. And we'll get into the rule in just a second, but can you give some examples of some of the industries where independent contractor agreements are really prevalent? We all know about Uber and DoorDash and those people being at least attempted to be classified as independent contractors in most states. What other kinds of industries do you see a lot of independent contractors in? Oh my gosh, everywhere. You've got drivers, you've got construction workers, you've got janitorial workers, healthcare. It's big in healthcare, manufacturing, construction, you name it. I can't think of an industry, hospitality, I can't think of an industry this doesn't affect, to be honest with you. All right. So tell us about this new rule. I believe that the clarification has come that there is a consideration of six factors. It is a six-factor test. Is that right? You are seldom wrong and right again, Ms. Bannon. <laughs> All right. So what's our first what's our first category? What's the first factor that that employers and the DOL and ultimately a judge might consider when deciding whether somebody is an independent contractor or an employee? Okay. Great question. I'm glad you asked it. So basically, you've got these six factors and the DOL is dubbing them what they call the quote unquote economic realities test, starting with an evaluation of the first factor, which is the worker's opportunity for profit and loss. What does that mean? It means that if a worker has no opportunity for profit other than just working more hours for your company, that worker is more than likely an employee as opposed to an independent contractor. What are the factors you should consider when you're doing the analysis of profit and loss? You should ask yourself, does the worker determine the charge or how much they get paid? If if you look at, typically independent contractors are paid based on their output, not their time. So if you're paying somebody on an hour basis or a per day basis, you could find yourself running afoul of that of the rule. Right, It weighs in favor of independent contractor status if they are based on output, not time equals employee, generally speaking. So if the control the employee has in terms of making more or making less is really just, I can work more, I can work less, that's not going to go well for the employer. Exactly. But if the employee or the worker has more sway in how much they can command for the work, that leans in favor of independent contractor status. For this job, I'm going to charge you $300. For this other job, I'll charge you $100. They set the terms of pay, not you. Okay. Okay. And to that end, it also should be assessed whether that worker can decline or accept jobs as they see fit. If you're telling them you have to be here Monday through Friday, you have to get it done within these hours of the workday, and they have no say over setting their own hours, that's going to lean in favor of employee status. 
And that goes also into one of the other factors a little bit. There's some overlap between that with the the fourth factor that we'll talk about in a little while, right? Which fourth factor are you referring to? The nature and degree the nature and degree of control over the performance of the work, that if the employer is the one who tells you when and where and how to do it, less likely to be an independent contractor. Right. So in that regard, and like you said, we're going to talk about that factor, that's more about controlling you and when you show up. As far as the control aspect of the worker's opportunity for profit and loss, I interpret the new rule to focus on does the worker have the option to hire somebody to assist them to complete their job? Do they determine their own staffing, their own, uh, how they do the work? And yes, there's overlap, but I think that it, it does factor in a lot to the question of how they make their own money. All right. What's our second factor? The second factor is the investments that are made comparatively between the worker and the employer. So these look at the capital or entrepreneurial investments that the worker makes. It includes the cost of the tools, the equipment that's needed to perform the job, the cost of the worker's labor, costs costs that the potential employer might impose unilaterally on that worker. So what are some examples of costs that won't really affect an independent contractor status versus some costs that would, or investments, I guess I should say, that that would? Like if you have a construction worker who buys their own set of tools... I don't know that would necessarily tell you one way or the other. If you have a construction worker who buys their own tools, I think nowadays that's really prevalent. And for a long time, employers have argued they provided their own hammer, they're independent. But with this new rule, because no one factor is dispositive, simply providing your own construction tools isn't going to get the job done, pun intended. It's, I don't know the answer. I wish I did. And I think that's part of the problem. This, these factors are so fluid and the Department of Labor has done such a poor job of giving us any real concrete guidance that we'll find out by trial and error is the best that I could tell you, unfortunately. So looking at the notes that you've so generously provided to me here, the idea that investments that are capital or entrepreneurial in nature and that support an independent business. For example, if you have a musician who has their own guitars and has their own studio equipment and their own recording equipment and their own microphones, et cetera, they can use that in a lot of different ways, right? They're not just singing a a kid's song at a birthday party. They can go and they can do an adult nightclub. They can play at a wedding. They can go do a lot of different things. Versus if you have a branded piece of equipment that you're forced to buy that is branded with somebody else's brand on it. Definitely. I think that's a really great example. And I think that the example of having a musician who performs at one venue and then goes on to another that you can perform weddings, you can perform bat mitzvahs, all of the other factors really come into play in your example. They have the ability to control what jobs they take. They have the ability to control when they work. Other than bridezillas who might say, nope, you're working my wedding on whatever day in sunny June. Um, But yeah, I think that's a really great example. Don't get me started on temperamental musicians and the trauma of my wedding music selection. So (laughs) I had a Russian band at my wedding. (laughs) (laughs) I would have really loved to have been there. That sounds like it would have been very fun. I don't know. I'm divorced now. Oh, I don't blame the band, but <laughs> <laughs> money well spent. <laughs> okay. The third factor 
is the degree of the permanence of the work relationship. So what does that mean? So this factor looks at whether the work relationship is indefinite in duration or continuous, which is often indicative of an employment relationship, not so much independent contractor. You're not hiring somebody on a project basis. Um, I'll give you an example. You hire somebody to paint the the walls of your house or the, the exterior of your house or build you a new roof. That project is finite. When it's done, it has an, a specific end date when that is over. But if you're hiring somebody on a continuous rolling basis for work that either you're building out on spec or you're going to need continuously, that's going to weigh in favor of an employment relationship. What if it is finite, meaning, for example, the guy who comes and pressure washes my driveway, I don't have him do it that often, but I say, okay, every three or four months or every six months, I want you to come pressure wash my driveway. Is that sporadic enough that it's not considered to be a permanent relationship? Are you in the pressure washing industry? You, Shiley Bannon, the attorney who owns a home, just wants to hire somebody completely unrelated to what you're doing to come as needed, pressure wash your driveway? Yes, but there's a the, the reason I go there is because the next question is about babysitting. I have a child, and what if I have a standing date with a babysitter every Friday night that they're going to come babysit my child? Because there's a, a big debate amongst the moms in my local Facebook mom group about whether nannies and babysitters are W-2 or 1099 employees if they are getting paid over the counter at all. Yeah, that's a subject that... And the point that you're raising is one that many people... I'm sure have raised in support of their arguments that they should be classified as employees. And conversely, I, along with other defense attorneys, would argue you're not because while there's no necessarily finite end date to when the services might conclude, you are not regularly on my payroll. This is good. I you you do your business. You have the opportunity to take on other work. Your nanny, your pressure washer might take on other jobs for other people in which you have no say. You don't provide them with the tools which they need to pressure wash your driveway. You'd look at all of the other factors. And that's where the tests become important because it's not going to ever be just one thing that you focus on to determine your classification. It's all of them. So what you're telling me is we need to zoom out. We need to look at all of these factors and keep going and not just focus on the third. What I'm telling you is you might have a lot of people on your payroll between your nannies and your pressure washers. (laughs) You could run a little like shyly village. (laughs) Listen, I have to outsource a lot of my life, okay? And it's better for all of us that we do that. And it's better for my marriage that we do that also. (laughs) The Department of Labor, you keep putting yourself out there. You'll have the Department of Labor coming in doing an audit. Oh, no. Your staff. (laughs) But what are they going to consider next? All right. So we've got three. We've got the degree of performance. We've got investments and capital. We've got opportunity for profit and loss. What's next? The nature and degree of control over the performance of the work. So how much of a micromanager is your manager? (laughs) I don't know. Ask anybody who I've ever worked with, and they might tell you that... uh, (laughs) That Jackie is an employer of everybody. (laughs) The the control is real. But this, so the control factor was previously considered what is the core factor. This is the like number one thing that, that agencies and courts looked at to determine 
whether somebody was an independent contractor or an employee, which is that level of employer control. Does the employer control all of the work? Does he control the economic aspects of the relationship? Like we talked about earlier, setting prices and rates. That control component has historically been the lens through which we view most of these misclassification claims that we've handled. The Department of Labor has taken this and moved away from it being the core factor and made it as one out of six. None of these factors weighs heavier than another, according to the 2024 rule. In in theory, in theory. In theory, the relevant factors here that you would want to look at are the same as they ever were. It's the worker's schedule. It's whether the employer supervises the performance, which includes technological supervision in this day and age of remote work. Um, technological supervision still counts. There's employers who've got remote workers and they log in, clock in, clock out. They'll have keyboard stroke technology to see who's actually doing the work. Whether you limit the the employees or the workers' ability to work elsewhere or you have the authority to discipline them, that's a really important component, that disciplinary action component. So when you're talking about control, what actually is considered to be control? And I know you gave us some examples, but if you think, for example, there has to be some sort of standardization amongst a service that's being provided. So if you, let's say Uber, for example, or or DoorDash or Uber Eats, which I actually used this afternoon for my lunch, I know- million dollars. I'm sorry? Did it cost you $7 million? My husband listens to this podcast, so I really don't want to talk about how much I spent to have my six-inch Subway sandwich delivered to me rather than- Walking to go get it. <laughs> I'm going to plead the fifth on that. Um, but when you're ordering through that app, you expect the same conduct from all of the different drivers who may drop off your food or who may pick you up, right? You, it's There is some standardization. And I know that some of these apps, they actually give the drivers the routes that they need to take to get you from point A to point B. And I think that all of that goes to that element, right? You work for the Department of Labor now? No, but I'm just curious if that's one of the things that happens when these debates happen in cities and in other places that are looking at these employees as not independent contractors, but as employees. I think now I don't represent Uber um, or DoorDash or Lyft or any of those companies. But I think that's always been the argument and that they've had, especially out in California, which is how much control they retain over their drivers. And they've had a lot of success in recent years. And they've achieved what they set out to do, which was prove that these drivers are independent, that just because you tell them there's a route that you have to go or a time by which you have to get something delivered, that's not by itself dispositive of whether or not you're an independent contractor. That may be a tool that is just helping you do your job more efficiently or doing your independent yeah. contracting work more efficiently. And overall, big picture, the drivers do have their own cars. They do get their own insurance. They do decide what they want, to, what days they want to deliver. Nobody, as far as I know, I, can, I suppose I can't speak for Uber, but as far as I know, the drivers can decide what days they want to work. Do they want to be full-time, part-time? Taking this, swinging the pendulum in the opposite direction, if you have a business and you're looking to hire somebody and you tell that worker, no, you can't be part-time, no, you can't select what days you want to come in, that's going to weigh against you. If you tell Like a Papa John's John's pizza delivery guy who has the Papa John's thing on the top of his car. 
I don't, I'm not entirely familiar with Papa John's. Is that pizza? Yes. Is that not something that you're in New Jersey, which is the land of good pizza? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You saw what I was doing there, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Rub it in a little bit more. No, Um, I don't know what that is, but that is not pizza. Let me tell you. (laughs) The, and I will say just so everybody is very clear, Florida actually has ruled on the side of Uber and DoorDash and all of these, all of these uh, gig working companies Time and time again, I am very proud to be a Floridian as both a Floridian and an employer or a business owner. Oh, I don't blame you. Okay. So, and I think there was a New York court actually that ruled that Papa John's pizza is not pizza. I'll find you that decision, but I'm quite certain that I've read it and it's out there. And it might not have been Papa John's, it might have been Domino's, but whatever the chain pizza is, there's an actual judicial opinion that says, as a matter of law, that is not pizza. I will just tell you that at two o'clock in the morning when I was in college, Papa John's was the best thing in the world. Get out of here. Factor number five. All right. The extent, I'll tell you what that is. It's the extent to which the work is the work that's performed is an integral part of the employer's business. What does that mean? So does it mean not that the individual themselves is integral to the business? Obviously, you're gonna have that with every situation, and that worker will always be integral in in to some degree. Integration means is that work the tasks that the employee or the worker is doing, are they necessary so that your business can actually function, so that it is the business itself? And I'll give you an example. Let's say you're a web design company that hires a programmer as an independent contractor, and you classify that person as such, right? But that programming is integral to your business. It's there's an argument to be made that without that person, your business wouldn't function. Or a law firm, you have to have lawyers, right? You're not going to have it most likely independent contractors on your payroll because those workers are integral to your legal function. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, but there are some lawyers that you can hire on a contract basis to do things for you. You sure can. You sure can. But if you're telling them they have to be in your office Monday through Friday, 40 hours a week or a million hours a week, as the case may be, you're going to have a tough sell. If the nature of your work overlaps with the work that person is hired to do, more than likely you are going to have an employee. A lot of companies, they, I'm just going to be dispatch. I'm going to be in the business of, let's say, painting houses. And you'll call XYZ company painters. We will come, we'll service, we'll do everything. But you're going to outsource all your painters. More than likely, you're going to have a problem because all the painters are integral to the job that you're marketing yourself as doing for your client base. Now, what if you change that hypothetical and change it into, we are not the ones who paint the house, but we will connect you like a Mr. Fix-It. We will find the service that you need for your house. In that regard, if you're disclosing that you're just the third-party relationship broker, you I think you'll be on better footing. You've got Angie's List. You've got, what's the other ones? All of them. All the house repair companies, the handyman companies. I think that they've been pretty successful in maintaining the boundaries between employees and independent contractors. They don't purport themselves to be the ones coming out. They're just saying, we're going to charge you an excessive fee, much like the delivery of your sandwich, and we'll save you the hassle of trying to vet somebody and find somebody yourself. That's the business. They're in the business of doing basically the background checks, you would hope at least, right? One would hope. One would hope. And so what's our last, what's our last one? What's our last factor? 
The last factor is the use of the worker's own skill and initiative. So this looks to what the specialized skill is that's required for the job that's being done. Obviously, the less specialized skill that's required for the job and the more dependent that worker is for on-the-job training and getting help in, in specializing their own skills, the more likely the individual will be considered an employee. Can you give us some examples? So I would tell you, if you require training, let's say you have a fitness repair business, you repair gym equipment and you hire somebody to repair treadmills, but they come to your company and they have no idea how those treadmills are repaired. Then more likely to be an employee. They'll argue. Okay. But conversely then, lawyers, theoretically, we come with a lot of our own specialized skill and training and experience, right? So if I don't, if, if you stand on your own two feet and you as a worker are independent, the skills that you bring to the table are highly specialized. You don't need training. You don't need a, you don't need to get on the job experience to excel in your field. The more likely you are that it's an independent contractor. But you would have to, again, weigh all six of those. You'd have to look at everything. No one factor is particularly determinative. And if you ask the Department of Labor now, according to the new rule, they'll tell you it's six, but there's actually a seventh. There's a seventh catch-all gotcha factor that the Department of Labor hasn't even decided what it is yet. It's this kind of, even if all six of those that we talked about militate in favor of contractor status, the Department of Labor will still come in and say, there's other factors. We haven't figured out what those might be yet, but we want to clip you and get you on misclassification. And we'll decide what those are later. So they just say additional factors. Good luck. It just says additional factors. Yeah. That's like the IRS when you ask, how much do I owe in taxes? And they say, we're not going to tell you. You've got yes. to <laughs> and if you get wrong, you're going to jail. <laughs> yes. That's yes, exactly that's... what it is. Somewhere in the government, they talk amongst themselves. You've got government workers. Assuming that they're there after 10 a.m. on a Friday. Before 10 a.m. or after. Yeah, that's true. So tell so, me what you think. What do you think of the new rule? In theory... Since it's been around for precisely 13, 15 days, 15 days. I don't know math. Yeah, 15 sounds about right. right. Yeah, I became a lawyer because I was very bad at math. It sounds like it actually will give employers the opportunity to present a more complete picture because it is de-emphasizing the core factors like we were discussing earlier. How it shakes out, I think ultimately this is going to create some uncertainty and some confusion for employers, especially at the beginning. And there are some ambiguities, again, going back to that seventh factor. Why are you Um, being so nice? I feel like you're being just like unnecessarily politically correct of the Department of Labor. I don't know who's listening. I don't know who's listening. Like like I said, I'm doing my taxes right now. (laughs) Yeah. If anybody at the Department of Labor is out there, I would like me, Jackie Voronov, I will tell you that I think that this rule needs a lot of work. I think that. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. We've complicated everything. It's muddied the waters. I think it's completely unnecessary. But that's just me. What do I know? Who am I? I'm no one. I think that it makes it a a much more expansive definition of what an employee is, right? Does it? Or does it blur the definition and make it completely impossible to figure out who the heck an employee is? The Department of Labor has applied their core, some variation of these factors for more than 70 years. And they've touted themselves as having great success. 
I think that all this does is cast a wider net and make it more difficult for employers to establish what is genuinely an independent contractor relationship. One of the issues also that employers are going to have to keep in mind is that it's not just the Department of Labor rules that they have to worry about. They have to worry about state rules, county rules, and even in some places, city rules. Probably New York City has its own definition of what an independent contractor is. I I can only imagine. Uh, There's state level. I don't know of any local level rules on independent contracting, at least not up here. I don't know if you've got any in Florida. No, Florida does not have anything on that kind of a local level, but I wasn't sure about New York or California even. California and New Jersey are pretty similar. And I think this is why Uber has had such great and Lyft have had such great success on in addition to lobbying efforts, certainly. But in New Jersey, we've always had what's called the ABC test. And the ABC test has always looked at the level of control, whether the work is performed in the usual course of business for the employer and whether that individual is engaged in their own independent, established trade or occupation. So three out of six of these have always been the law. And I think that although they broke it down into six, most courts have always, to some degree, looked at these these factors anyway. I I really do believe that this is a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of situation. And courts will still continue to apply their judicial precedent regardless. This law only applies to the FLSA. Just to be clear, it doesn't change state laws. I think it only serves to confuse them. Do you think that courts will start, even state courts will start looking at the DOL laws as sort of guidance or instructive in in applying this even with their own standards? Depends on the judge, depends on the venue and the jurisdiction, certainly. It's not precedential. Are you giving me a lawyerly answer? It depends? Yeah, a little. (laughs) (laughs) There's no requirement that any judge on any bench in any state give deference to the Department of Labor on anything. It's just guidance. I think that unless the Supreme Court finds this summer that agency rules do apply as precedential, but judges are free to disregard this. They won't. The Department of Labor guidance and their rules are fairly instructive on how they should find, but Courts who have always applied the ABC test most likely will will continue to apply it in the right manner. All this does is open the door for additional litigation, in my case, and misclassification lawsuits. So the Department of Labor classification in terms of an independent contractor versus an employee, that matters for things like taxes, right? Federal taxes. Well, the IRS has its own classification requirements. Good. (laughs) Let's make it a little more confusing. It, it matters It matters for overtime, right? This matters on a federal level. It matters because this only, if you're interpreting how to determine your compliance with the FLSA, the Department of Labor's guidance matters. If a judge in New Jersey is sitting here trying to interpret New Jersey's Wage Payment Act, this is not binding on that question. And the FLSA covers payment of wages. Yes. Minimum wage and overtime. Right. Yeah. So the phrase independent contractor, though, is used in so many other aspects of of business operations. You just pointed out that there's a difference. There's a different definition that the IRS has for paying taxes. I know that in the, the liability work that I do when I'm representing 
business owners in liability cases like medical malpractice cases or even general liability cases that sometimes there are allegations of vicarious liability against a business owner for the tortious acts of some individual. And there is an allegation that a person is either an employee or an agent. And many times we've had to raise the argument that somebody is actually an independent contractor because in tort law, a a a person who contracts the services of an independent contractor is not vicariously liable for the acts of that independent contractor, but they would be liable for the acts of an employee. And so we have a completely different evaluation of what is considered to be an independent contractor in the tort context, for example. And in workers' compensation, independent contractors entitled to something different. Unemployment compensation, what's the definition of an independent contractor under Florida's unemployment compensation rule or under the New Jersey unemployment compensation rule? They, they have all these different tests. And so when you say somebody's an independent contractor, the question is really in what context are you using that phrase, right? Absolutely. For our purposes today, in just talking about the new Department of Labor rule, this applies only in the context of a misclassification lawsuit. It's not, it doesn't carry over, spill over into the question of liability for an agent or independent contractor that you might, you're one of your clients might have. This is strictly wage and hour litigation. So if there, let's say, for example, an independent contractor signs an independent contractor agreement. And on the top, it says independent contractor agreement. And it oh, says blah, 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 old blah. letter. Well, you know, blah, 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 blah. sometimes people really like to get those kinds of contracts off of findlaw.com or 1-800-CONTRACTS. And they think that they're saving themselves some money and time. It's adorable. It's adorable. You're the cutest little thing I've ever did see. <laughs> Just because you write it on a piece of paper, it doesn't mean it's true. And the court's Across the board will tell you your piece of paper does not matter. Call it what it is. You can write on a piece of paper, the sky is green. Doesn't make the sky green. They're going to look at the totality of what the relationship is. But all of the legal experts on my Nextdoor app have told me otherwise. I understand. I know. It's crazy. It's insane to me. I don't know why you can't just get away with these things. (laughs) Blame the Department of Labor. So let's say you're a really responsible business owner. You're a really responsible business owner and you see this new DOL guidance come out and you have a lot of people who have been working for you under the independent contractor arrangement for pay. And maybe you want to be proactive and you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing. What would you suggest business owners do in order to evaluate the independent contractor relationships that they have to see if they need to make changes, other than obviously maybe have a conversation with an attorney licensed in their jurisdiction who who has expertise or practices labor and employment law. Why do you ask me the question if you know the answer that I'm going to say to you? <laughs> obviously, the most important thing you can do or the, the best thing you can do is consult with legal counsel in your jurisdiction because they'll work with you to review the final rule They'll work with you to ensure your classification policies are up to snuff. They'll review the the job description. They'll review the the worker duties. They'll review your pay structure. They'll review the full panoply of circumstances and then be able to make a proper assessment as to whether you're in compliance. 
with the rule. Bearing in mind at all times, the penalties are pretty severe. So an ounce of prevention really is worth a pound of cure because if you're found to be misclassifying employees, you're on the hook for back pay, you're on the hook for penalties, you're on the hook for liquidated damages and a whole host of other damages. It's just too expensive not to. So the best thing you can do, review your workforce, review your policies, review any agreements you might have, and just to be on the safe side, have a third party review them. It's just, like I said, it's the best thing you can do. All right. I think that we are running out of time, but this has been a very robust conversation and makes me happy that all I have to deal with is my W-2 rather than figuring out all of these complicated rules as I do my own taxes. Yeah, I'm just thinking about all the people out there who are actually independent contractors, and now they're being told, congratulations, you have no more independence. You're now an employee. Forget about being your own boss. Have fun. Go back to the nine to five grind. You're no longer a fearless freelancer. I think it's, I think we're going down a dangerous road here. But that's a podcast for another day. I think that there's a lot to unpack with independent contractors, and I'm sure that we will revisit this topic. Who knows? Maybe with the next election year. I could tell you my mother is opposed to it. She's already sent an email. <laughs> to litigators lounge at hallboothsmith.com. I didn't see that one. The Department of Labor. Oh, good. <laughs> As a business owner, she's very upset. All right. We will be back uh, in a few weeks with our next topic. But if you have any questions, our listeners out there who are listening, including Mrs. Varnoff, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at litigators lounge at hallboothsmith.com and stay happy out there, stay warm and enjoy whatever beverage you are bringing to the litigators lounge next time. Thank you so much. Bye, Shiley. Bye. Thank you for joining us on Litigators Lounge. This show is brought to you by Hall Booth Smith, helping clients navigate the complexities of workplace legal issues. For more information, go to hallboothsmith.com. Litigators Lounge is a production brought to you by Hall Booth Smith. This podcast is published for the purposes of providing general information and education on topics which include those related to the law and legal issues. But the contents of this podcast do not constitute legal advice. Listening to this podcast or utilizing the information contained in it in any way does not constitute, nor does it create, an attorney-client relationship between you and Hall Booth Smith or its lawyers. The contents of this podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a professional attorney licensed in your jurisdiction.